Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome to this brought to you by bonus episode. We just finished our latest season with a story about Nearest Green, the man who taught Jack Daniel how to make whiskey. And if you haven't heard it yet, be sure to go check it out. Well, now our team is hard at work reporting new episodes for our upcoming season. But in the meantime, I wanted to share a story with you from another podcast that I think you might like. Consider this kind of a a book club, but for podcasts. This week, our story comes from Proof, the podcast from America's Test Kitchen. Proof goes beyond recipes and cooking to investigate the foods we love and to uncover hidden backstories and big questions that surround them. This is very up our alley. Today, the true story of the Miracle Berry, a fruit that causes sour foods to taste sweet, and the company that almost made it mainstream. I'd never heard of the Miracle Berry, and there's a reason. As you'll hear, there's a lot of money at stake in the big business of making food taste sweet. It's a story full of twists and turns, conspiracy theories, sabotage, even a little good old-fashioned espionage. All that proofs host Bridget Lancaster and producer Sarah Joyner take it from here. On a late summer evening in August of 1974, Dr. Robert Harvey and his business partner, Don Emery, were heading to Dr. Harvey's home for dinner. The arrangement I had with my family was that on evenings that I had to work late, uh, my wife and I, we had agreed that rather than stay and work late and skip dinner, what she'd prefer is that I would come home, I could bring anybody with me, and we would have dinner and then we could go back to work and the kids could go do their homework and go to bed. They had a long night of work ahead of them. Robert Harvey and Don Emery were in the process of securing a big investment from Colgate Palmolive, who wanted in on their product, a sweetening alternative to sugar. They turned the lights off, armed the alarm, and locked the doors. That night, my wife served turkey tetrazzini, and as was the deal, we all accommodated, and the kids complained and got extra desserts as a result. The kids went off to do their homework before bed, Robert and Don finished their meal and then got in the car to drive back to the office. It was in an office park in Hudson, Massachusetts, and their building was the third on the left. And Robert's office was the second floor corner office. It's visible from the street. And they noticed that the lights were on. We raced down the street. We skidded to a a stop. We both jumped out of the car, slammed the doors, and we ran up to the front door. And we found the front door uh, unlocked. We opened the door. No alarms went off. My office door was open. A file cabinet drawer was pulled out, and there were a lot of things strewn on the floor. And just as we were at about that point, we heard the fire door close, and there was a car went speeding by and went up the street and disappeared. The police said it was a professional job. The alarm had been disarmed. None of the locks were damaged. No sign of a forced entry. How could they get in the building? How could they set off the alarm and the rest? And the police had no answers for any of those things. 
filed the folder on my um, on my desk. It was called the, the FDA master file, and it was just strewn on the floor. FDA, as in Food and Drug Administration. So it it uh, remained a little bit of a mystery. Today, our producer Sarah Joyner brings us this story about an alternative sweetener that you've probably never heard of and the man who almost succeeded in changing the sugar industry. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. Dr. Harvey has since passed away, but before his death in 2012, a documentary crew went to his house to interview him about what happened to him in the 1970s. He's a scientist in every definition of the word, meaning he's not hyperbolic. He feels an obligation to fact-based evidence. It seems important to him that he provides the full context in every story he tells. He's not brief, so it's difficult to fit his account into a sexy package. I got my hands on the raw footage and you can hear the producer's frustration with Harvey. The documentary crew never used the interview. I want to. I want to just get you very quickly, like one a, a soundbite saying that there was a number of tests that you. Okay, now in answering that, uh, let me let me go back. Let me go back in in time to um, from the very beginning. The first thing we want to do is responsible people. If we're taking it. The office break-in was just one of several strange incidents that occurred around Dr. Harvey and his company, Miralin, in the late summer of 1974. His employees complained they were being watched and photographed. And Dr. Harvey even found himself unwittingly in a high-speed car chase on the winding roads of Hudson, Massachusetts, one summer night. He never knew who was following him. In 1974, Dr. Harvey and his business partners had stumbled upon something that had the potential to upend the American food industry. And there were a lot of people who didn't want it to get into the hands of American consumers. What was it? A little red berry. A little red berry? Yeah, but this small berry was a big financial threat to a lot of people. It kind of looks like a cranberry. It has a mild-tasting flesh and a small pit inside. It's called the Miracle Berry. Miracle. What's miraculous about this tiny little berry? It's definitely not the flavor. No? No, and don't get me wrong, it doesn't taste bad, but the berry is special for what happens after you eat it. It makes sour things taste sweet. Not a little sweet, not a weird stevia-like bittersweet, or an aspartame medicinal elixiry sweet, but a remarkable sugar-like sweet. Lemons instantly transform into lemonade. And you know that behind-the-ear cringe you get when you eat sour things? Miracle berries eliminate that entirely. Well, I would say that teeters on a miracle, but how is that even possible? So the berry contains something called a glycoprotein named miraculin. And this glycoprotein binds to your sweet taste receptors, and in a neutral environment, it has no taste at all. But in the presence of acid, the glycoprotein shapeshifts and it stimulates those sweet taste receptors and sends a signal to your brain that you're eating something sweet. It sounds like it's actually tricking your brain. Right. And it's not just 
the sweetness. When the sour taste of a food is suppressed, it seems like the natural flavors are dialed way up. It's like you're Dorothy and you just stepped out of Kansas and into the land of Oz and you're tasting in color for the first time. After trying one, I felt like I learned for the very first time what a lemon actually tastes like. It's just really cool. And it made me wonder why we don't know about it. And so I began to look into the history of this little fruit to answer the question, who killed the Miracle Berry? The Miracle Berry grows on small shrub-like trees. It's native to West Africa and nations along the Gold Coast, and it's been eaten there by locals for almost three centuries. It didn't make it over to the United States until 1919, when the golden boy of American botany, David Fairchild, brought it here while working for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. But early on, the Miracle Berry was dismissed because it wasn't considered a viable option for wide growth and consumption because of a couple major limitations, supply and stability. The Miracle Berry is very high maintenance. It requires specific conditions like subtropical temperatures and filtered light and acidic soil. The trees take a while to grow, they produce berries really slowly, and essentially as soon as they're plucked, they begin to die. They have a shelf life of about two days. So the Miracle Berry was relegated to this niche status. It was cool, but not viable. When Robert Harvey was introduced to the Miracle Berry, he was completely enamored. I captured uh, uh, my interest. It changed my life. And in 1970, he started a company called Merlin. He built an impressive team with scientists and businessmen from Harvard and MIT. So they got to work. They rented some land in Jamaica to set up their horticultural operations, and eventually, Dr. Harvey figured out how to extract the sweetening glycoprotein from the berry. By removing it from the perishable fruit, he was able to create a super-concentrated, but more importantly, shelf-stable powder. And he incorporated the magic powder into tablets, jams, even salad dressings. But there was some concern that maybe the American public wouldn't want an alternative to their beloved sugar. So, in the summer of 1974, Dr. Harvey and his team are on the streets of Boston, having school children taste test his Miralin popsicles alongside sugar-sweetened ones. The, the test we're talking about is really a test to determine and prove to the new investors coming in, prove to the world, prove to everybody, that Miraculin is ready for the big-time market. The popsicles were coated with the Miraculin powder, so as you lick the popsicle, the glycoprotein binds to your taste buds, then the acidity inside the popsicle activates the sweetness. And the bottom line was that in all four flavors, the Miraculin sweetened product was preferred over the sugar-sweetened product. I'm not sure that I believe this because I've tried my share of alternative sweeteners. I've also tried to pawn them off on other people. You can always taste them. You can pick them out. They've got this medicinal or they're bitter or they're a little bit sour. I, I categorize them as just tasting wrong. Well, I completely agree with you. And yet that's what the report says. This, this is probably the most convincing thing we ever did. This was a statistically significant double-blind test and proved that we were better than sugar. 
So he's getting his ducks in a row. He's figuring out solves for all the problems that make the Miracle Berry tough to commercialize. Supply, stability, and now he's got proof of concept with this popsicle test. So what's up next? A very important detail. Regulatory. Now, FDA dealings can be a bit hairy, so Marilyn hires the leading law firm in the nation on FDA approval matters to advise them, a firm out of D.C. called Covington & Burling, who said that as far as they were concerned, based on the data that we submitted to them, that would qualify it as what they call at the time a grass substance. Grass as in not the, not the lawn, <laughs> but generally recognized as safe, Right. Right. And heads up, I'm going to get into some pretty dense regulatory concepts, but stick with me here. So food ingredients can be categorized as either food additives or grass. And there's a difference? Yes, but it's actually a very slight difference. It boils down to whether the information about the food is publicly available or not. And it's sort of baked into the acronym GRASS, generally recognized. So if the food is generally eaten or the science generally known by experts, it's GRASS. If not, it's a food additive. This sounds vague, and honestly, it kind of is. But in order for something to be grass, there has to be published science about it that's available in the form of stuff like peer-reviewed journals. It's got to be available to experts generally, is the way it's written in regulation. So at this point, Marilyn has decided to pursue the grass status instead of going for a food additive. They did deliberate for a while. And the Miracle Berry didn't have common use in the United States, but they did have scientific publications. There was a small community of researchers actively studying and publishing on the toxicology of the Miracle Berry at the time, including Dr. Harvey's own PhD thesis. And that expert community concurred that it was safe to eat. That sounds like a sure bet. Right, but Harvey was a smart businessman and a conservative risk taker. He hired independent labs to do some additional safety tests that were way beyond requirement. He built a large FDA file with all the evidence indicating safety. Ah, was it that FDA file that they found open during that break-in? That's the one. But the most interesting part of the FDA regulation is that grass status is self-affirmed. So if you believe your product meets the FDA's grass criteria, then you can sell it. But you do have to be able to justify it. And if the FDA disagrees with your self-affirmation, then they can shut you down. So it's a catch-22. Basically, the FDA is like, you don't have to get our permission. It's whatever you think. But if you do whatever you think and we don't agree with you, we'll shut you down. That's basically what it boils down to. This could put a company or its investors in serious financial risk. So there's a safety net built in. There are procedures in place where you can work closely with the FDA from the onset through meetings and briefings so they can essentially agree with your own self-determination of grass. And that just makes investors feel more comfortable. So that's exactly what Dr. Harvey did with Miralyn. While reporting this story, I got access to an archive that was created by the son of Dr. Harvey after he died. Um, so these are boxes five, six, and seven. Okay. Eight and nine should be flat boxes, so I'll put those on a separate card for you. It seemed to have copies of every scrap of paper Bob Harvey ever touched. All of the paperwork associated with Marilyn, business plans, memos to investors, even the early iterations of Marilyn products were there. And... 
every single correspondence between Marilyn, its lawyers, and the FDA between the years of 1972 and 1975. You'll hear some excerpts of those letters in this story. So Harvey's working with his fancy D.C. law firm, who has ushered dozens of companies through this process successfully. They know FDA regulation inside and out. March 6, 1973. Dear Dr. Harvey, this is in response to your request that we provide you with our views on the current status on the use of miracle fruit extract. And these lawyers say, this is an easy case. Based on all the data we have, we agree. You can reasonably claim grass. We concluded that the company reasonably could establish that, based in part on common use in food, Miracle Fruit was generally recognized as safe for its intended function. But, he says, let's play nice with the FDA just in case. Let's have some meetings, keep them informed of what we're up to. He explains that it is possible that Miracle Fruit could be recategorized as a food additive. Now, if that happens, it'll probably be approved on the spot because of all the safety evidence. But, and this is the worst case scenario, if there is any evidence that the Miracle Berry could be harmful for human consumption, it could be banned. But it is our expert opinion that that is extremely unlikely. We do not believe that there is any reasonable likelihood that Miracle Fruit or its extract or concentrate would fall into the last category described. With best regards, very truly yours, Eugene I. Lambert. In August of 1973, Mirlin has a meeting with the FDA. All the big hitters are there. The director of the Bureau of Foods, Dr. Virgil Watica, the director of compliance, Sam D. Fine, and the head of the Division of Food and Color Additives, Dr. Richard Ronk. Dear Dr. Watica, this letter is to express our thanks for the very useful meeting at the FDA last Tuesday. We found the discussion most instructive and helpful. Dr. Harvey uses the meeting to update the FDA on the big pile of safety evidence he's accumulated and to take their temperature on how regulation might unfold. During the meeting, there's an important exchange about which category Maryland should pursue for approval, grass or food additive. Dr. Richard Ronk says, maybe you guys should file a petition for food additive status and Sam D. Fine The director for compliance proceeds to argue in favor of grass. He's like, no, no, Miracle Berries don't fall under the food additive definition. You guys should definitely file for grass. And the director of the FDA, Virgil Watica, agrees. So, Dr. Harvey says, great, we're in agreement. We're filing for grass. We have reached the decision that we will promptly file for grass affirmation with the FDA for our Miracle Fruit Concentrate. Sincerely yours, Robert J. Harvey, Ph.D. Up to this point, the Maryland FDA relationship was great. There was almost a spirit of camaraderie. But a couple months later, in October 1973, the head of the FDA sends an interesting letter. Dear Dr. Harvey, Recently, I've asked my staff to give further study to the eligibility of Miracle Fruit Concentrate for affirmation of generally recognized as safe status. It says, we have some concerns that you should address as soon as possible. Should our decision be otherwise, a food additive for which there is no regulation would be on the market. 
I would think this would be a situation you would wish to avoid. And to quell their concerns, Dr. Harvey writes a letter, heavy with scientific jargon and citations, that addresses the FDA's questions line by line. Dear Dr. Wadika, this is in specific response to the questions raised in your letter of October 12th. First, Dr. Wadika says, we need some scientific literature to prove that experts think this is safe. We are not aware of such extensive dissemination of toxicological tests in the scientific literature. And Dr. Harvey replies, As you know, we have conducted extensive toxicological studies of miracle fruit concentrate. Then he proceeds to cite 13 of these studies. Next, Dr. Wadika expresses some concern over the physiology of the sweetening effect. One wonders whether the taste perception of the tongue is all that is involved, or whether the central nervous system is involved. And Dr. Harvey replies, No, the taste altering does not happen in the brain, it happens on the tongue. See attached studies. Again. Then he re-explains the phenomenon over the course of several pages in the letter. I won't bore you with the details. And finally, Dr. Wadika's last concern. There is also some inherent danger in using a material which can dull the natural taste defenses of small children against bad-tasting hazardous materials. Miracle fruit concentrate offered as tablets could lead to such accidents, and proper labeling must be developed to protect the unwary. Sincerely yours, Virgil O. Wadika, Director, Bureau of Foods. But the science was on Dr. Harvey's side here. He replies, very diplomatically, I might add, Most common available acids are 500 to 1,000 times higher in concentration than the effective sweetening range of Miraculin. No, Miracle Fruit won't sweeten cleaning products. Very truly yours, Robert J. Harvey. So after Dr. Harvey addresses these concerns, the FDA goes silent. They miss their deadline to provide a decision on the grass status. They're supposed to do it within 90 days. And he calls and he writes, but he's completely pushed aside. Yeah, the government never does anything slowly and then ignores (laughs) you. This is so strange that this happened. Well, it feels like the tone shifted a little bit. It definitely has. Whereas before all the correspondence was super chummy, this is the first instance that I could detect of hesitation on the part of the FDA. But finally, six months later, the FDA calls. Marilyn's lawyers say... The FDA said they're cool. They're not planning on interfering with Maryland's grass status. Dear Bob, this letter will recapitulate briefly our meeting with the FDA. If I had to summarize the entire experience, it would be that the FDA was telling us that they were not going to take action on a grass basis. Very truly yours, Eugene I. Lambert. And then, in the spirit of cooperation, Dr. Harvey meets with the FDA toxicologist, just to make sure there won't be any surprises. According to an affidavit Dr. Harvey wrote later about the meeting, the toxicologist confirmed Dr. Harvey had adequately answered their questions, and that, quote, as far as he was concerned, these were never serious concerns. And so it seemed that they were back on course, and approval was imminent. But then... In the fall of 1974, some very strange things begin to happen. 74, that was when the car chase happened and you had that office break-in. Exactly. And a couple weeks after the break-in, 
on September 19, 1974, everything changed. When I was away on a business trip, I got an emergency call from my secretary. She was very excited and wanted me to call immediately. When I called her, I found out that we had received a letter. September 19, 1974. Dear Dr. Javi. The letter was from Sam D. Fine. Remember, this is the same guy who suggested Marilyn pursue a grass affirmation the year before. The data submitted are insufficient to support a determination that the product is grass. The letter said, we are denying your petition. We think Miracle Berries and their concentrate is a food additive. And even without any evidence that it could be harmful for consumption, we don't approve it. We understand that your firm has been shipping this product in interstate commerce. This is a violation of Section 402. We know you're currently selling Miracle Fruit across state lines, and you have to stop. Take prompt action to cease interstate shipments of this product. If such action is not taken, the Food and Drug Administration is prepared to invoke regulatory sanctions provided under law. These include seizure, injunction, and prosecution. If you don't stop, we will prosecute you. Sincerely yours, Sam D. Fine, Associate Commissioner for Compliance. All of a sudden, it was over. There was no option to meet, to address concerns, or to get any solid answers as to why. Immediately after the demise of Maryland, we were all personally devastated. We were laying off employees. Uh, we were without a job or employment in a recession. We had just lost our, our life savings. And uh, not to comply with this meant that the, the senior officers of the company could go to jail. So we had no alternative. On September 19th, 1974, Marilyn died. Wait, so there was no recourse? Harvey just had to accept all this? Yeah, no recourse at all. And that's very unusual. It's another thing that was a little weird about how this all unfolded. The FDA wouldn't engage in a conversation about the decision at all. And Marilyn could have pursued food additive approval, by the way, but that would have required millions of dollars in additional testing, and their cash was already completely drained by the FDA's year-long game of back and forth. Bob did fight for a few years, though. He filed petitions, he consulted with lawyers, he asked for a review of the commissioner's conduct. He did everything he could. And how did it feel to know you were so close? Well, I, I think, I really think we've covered that, though. I mean, I, I, to be honest, I'm getting a little, <laughs> I'm getting a little washed out myself. So why did they deny him? Well, three years later, in 1977, long after Marilyn had dissolved, the FDA published their official notice of the grass denial in the Federal Register. And it cited a couple reasons. One, the petitioner didn't provide evidence of sufficient scientific studies. And two, there wasn't an adequate explanation of the physiology. But I thought that we covered all of this stuff already. Yeah, those reasons cited are 100% inaccurate based on the data I've reviewed. Was it a coincidence? Who was behind all of this? I'm not really sure. But the running theory is that special interests were meddling in the FDA. In the early 1970s, there was a rumor that saccharin was about to be banned because of a study that came out saying it might be harmful. Saccharin was the most common artificial sweetener of the time. So a ton of companies were working on alternatives that could replace saccharin on the market. And of course, Big Sugar didn't want any of those companies to succeed. 
Washington was in a state of upheaval at the time. This was smack dab in the middle of Watergate, which provided a perfect distraction for corporate bribery, if there was any. I reached out to the FDA, but they declined to comment on the details of this case. But Bob had a theory. Sometime in the 80s, after he had moved on, he says he received a phone call from someone he knew, a friend of a friend. He called in a frenzy, speaking nervously with a hushed voice, hesitant to tell a story over the phone. He claimed that someone had come into his workplace for an interview, and as a plot point on their resume, claimed to engineer the demise of Mirlin at the behest of, quote, international sugar interests. Regardless, Bob Harvey repeatedly refused to reveal his source over the years, and that story has never been corroborated. But do you think somebody wanted to engineer the demise of the miracle fruit? Yes, I believe that I believe that there were interests that um, uh, would very much like to have seen Marilyn fail. Who who were some of those interests? Well, um, we we never. Uh, I mean, it, I I have no direct evidence, but by the absence of any other logical explanation for why somebody would do something like. It's mostly a novelty now. Curious chefs have experimented with it over the years. Some people own small trees in their homes and host flavor-tripping parties. Over the past several decades, so many bushy-tailed entrepreneurs have encountered the berry, fallen in love with it, much like Robert Harvey, studied it, tried to develop something commercially, and each one of those ventures has failed, at least in making any sort of meaningful impact on the sugar alternative industry. And why hasn't anybody been able to succeed? Well, because it's a really complicated product. It's way more expensive to produce than sugar, and it has to be activated by an acid. It would require a ton of studying and engineering to make it truly competitive on the market, cost-wise and function-wise. I think Bob was well on his way to figuring all these details out before the FDA shut him down. And I wonder if they hadn't interfered if we would all be eating Miraculin now. But we can't know that. The biggest roadblock is its agriculture. So I went down to Miami, where some farmers grow miracle berries, so I could try to understand why commercialization of the miracle berry is so hard. So I could, uh, we could jump in a golf cart and I could give you a ride around the property yeah, uh, let's if do you that. like. But... That sounds great. This is Eric Tiedig. He's a second-generation fruit grower. He and his brother Chris own Pine Island Nursery, a tropical fruit nursery just south of Miami. So we have 50 acres, 46 employees, and, uh, and we grow about three-quarters of a million trees uh, per year. Their orchard has rows upon rows of trees and bushes dotted with hundreds of varietals of fruits. These are figs, behind them pomegranate. Uh, this is Chinese fruit called wampi, uh, Jamaican fruit called aki. But it's inside the greenhouse on the other side of the property where the real magic happens. The greenhouse is damp and warm. When you walk in, a humid stickiness hits you, notable even for Miami. 50,000 miracle fruit trees are coming of age in this greenhouse at any given time. They really do better and they thrive with a little filtered light. They tend to like uh, a slightly acidic soil, and they tend to grow better in pots than they do in the ground. They're not the easiest plants to grow. They are somewhat challenging. 
Eric is being modest. They're really freaking tough. He walks me up and down endless rows of miracle fruit trees. These trees are the fruits of his family's labor, years of studying and breeding and cultivating to create the most optimal specimen. They're breeding for traits like larger berry size or higher berry yield. But Eric's big breakthrough is that he's managed to cultivate a unique variety where the tree produces fruit perpetually year-round. So here you see all the very small, immature green fruit Uh right next to flowers, right next to mature red fruit ready to pick. This isn't something that happens in nature. Typically, a plant will flower, then grow fruit, then fully ripen, and then get picked, and then repeat. But on Eric's plants, you have the flowering, the developing fruit, and the mature fruit, all at the same time, which means you also have a perpetual cycle of harvesting. Well, this sounds like a really big operation. Maybe they're getting close. What are they doing with the berries? Well, they're selling them to hospitals and cancer patients. And what's the application there? Well, apparently another fun superpower that the Miracle Berry has is this ability to treat that metallic sort of acrid taste that's often a side effect of chemo treatment. And I should mention the science on it is still pretty young. Scientists aren't sure exactly how it works, whether it masks the metallic taste or if the sweetening unlocks enhanced flavors that mask the bad taste. But patients are going crazy for it. And so Eric's real goal is to try to scale production such that the price per berry keeps going down so it can be an affordable option for those undergoing chemotherapy. And he's also fleshing it out into different sorts of iterations like tablets and powders to make it accessible for patients who aren't local. Yeah, but Miracle Fruit was always viewed as something just too weird, too obscure, you know, no real market. You know, we just said enough is enough. If no one else is going to do it, we're going to do it ourselves. You know, we felt it was too important a crop and too important a use, you know, not to be available for these patients, you know, that really, really need it. You know, and the fact that this little fruit can provide such a big benefit to somebody meant a lot to us. Now, wait, why is all of this allowed to be sold now? Because the FDA banned it. Technically, yes, but this is where FDA regulations can become sort of a black hole. Eric and his farm, as well as other Miracle Fruit product sellers, are operating under self-affirmed grass status. Wasn't that denied in 1974? Yes, but the context is different now. There are more studies and more science available and a longer history of use. So all these farmers and growers have decided that given the present context, they feel comfortable in their own grass self-determination. And the FDA has left them alone. I bet it's hard to get confident. This all seems really arbitrary. It does seem that way. But D.C. sort of feels out of sight, out of mind from down in Miami. So Eric has made the growing process as efficient as it can be with the finicky nature of these plants. And it works for his purposes, for selling the berries to hospitals and patients. But it's still not enough to really compete with the price of sugar. If you want to do that, you have to be a little bit more creative with how you produce Miraculin. So this is fermentation in practice. Um, so what we have here is uh, our scientist Ishan, um, who is... This is uh, Jason Ryder. 
He's the CTO and co-founder of Miraculex, a food tech company out of Davis, California, that he co-founded with his business partner, Alan Perlstein. They're Silicon Valley guys with a background in food technology. They have experience using technology and plant proteins to make, quote-unquote, new food. Think vegan ice creams, plant-based burgers. And like Bob Harvey and Eric Tiedig, they love the Miracle Berry. And so does their R&D chef, Ben Roach. We've never experienced any, you know, whether it's like a scientific instrument or, you know, any other ingredient that has this kind of, you know, shape-shifting effect. And it's just like completely mind-blowing. He's a culinary mad scientist. He cooked at Moto, a famous Chicago restaurant that looked more like a lab than a kitchen. They were notorious for using ingredients in unexpected ways. They turned food upside down and twisted it inside out and charged a boatload of money for it. Between Ben's culinary imagination and Jason and Alan's food tech prowess, they make up sort of a dream team. Which is to say, if anyone's finally going to crack this Miracle Berry code, it's these guys. Jason is gesturing to two stirred glass tanks that are employing an aerobic fermentation. Inside of these tanks, small yeast organisms are creating miraculin. So what you have are these uh, glass stirred tanks uh, that are controlling uh, things like temperature, pH, uh, essentially the environment from which the yeast are, are living uh, and, and eating uh, and growing. This is called recombinant protein production. That means foreign DNA is introduced into a host, in this case, the yeast. And yeast makes a perfect host. It's single-celled, it's easy to genetically manipulate, and it also reproduces at really high rates. So a miraculin-creating gene is introduced into the yeast, Jason and his scientists feed the yeast, and it multiplies. And so these yeasts are doing what yeast do. Uh, they're eating sugar and they're making products. In this case, they're making our product, which is the miraculin protein, uh, which is expressed into the broth, much like um, ethanol would in a conventional beer uh, brewing process. To recover the miraculin, they spin the broth in a centrifuge really, really fast, which separates the solids from the broth. Then they isolate and separate out the miraculin protein that the yeast was making. And what's left is a super pure, super powerful powder. Yeah, so this is uh, around half a gram of our miraculin protein uh, purified um, that we use as our food ingredient. And uh, again, it, you know, it looks like any other food ingredient. It looks like a white powder. And so um, this, this half a gram uh, will go into hundreds, if not thousands of products. Jason says that this miraculin powder is 40,000 times more potent than sugar, so it takes a lot less to give you a lot more sweet. Well, it sounds like they've covered supply. Almost. They're still inching down the cost of production, but I think the fermentation is a very smart and elegant solution. It's novel. It's much more affordable, much more reliable. But creating the miraculin isn't the only hurdle— there's also a lot to consider with engineering its application in a food product. Right, because I know from other artificial sweeteners, sugar isn't just about the sweet taste that it adds to recipes. It's functional. It adds moisture to a recipe. It's going to help with browning, structure, and it adds volume to the total recipe. So that's especially important in baking. So how do you replace that function in addition to the sweetness of sugar? 
You have to be very creative. It's definitely not as easy as mixing miraculin into a food and making it sweet. Also, the miraculin has to coat your tongue before you eat the food in order for the sweetening to work. It has to be activated by an acid. So you have to engineer the food around it. And I mean, think about the difficulty of building each product so that not only does it work, but it's consistent and reliable. So no matter where you ship the product, anyone eating it anywhere will have the same experience. But none of these obstacles make it an impossible task. And I think, you know, of all the companies that have tried and failed to commercialize Miraculin, Miraculex definitely seems the closest. Well, in context of everything we've discussed today, I've got to ask about that ultimate hurdle or the 800-pound gorilla that's in the room. What's going on with the FDA? Well, they're facing regulatory head-on. They feel really confident that Miraculin is grass and that in this current climate, the FDA will agree. They're prepared to answer the FDA's questions and perform any studies that they request, so they're feeling optimistic. And hopefully we'll be seeing some of these miraculous sweetened products on the shelves of our grocery stores later this year. So, Sarah, here's the question. Who killed the miracle berry? <laughs> well, it's not dead, uh, but it certainly has been maimed by a thousand cuts. Supply, price, shelf life, instability, the FDA, international sugar interests, maybe, food application. And, you know, it finally, finally feels like we're getting to the place where we've found solutions to most of these problems. But I wonder if it's enough. Perhaps the biggest hurdle of all is addressing our own desire for sugar. Can we disrupt the status quo of a sugar-centered society? There's... A million reasons to kind of shoot it down or, you know, brush it off as a gimmick or, oh, it's weird or, you know, it's a new experience, like any new experience. You know, if if we lived in a world without airplanes and everyone's riding a bicycle, you look up in the sky, you see an airplane with people inside of it flying around, you're going to lose your mind. Like, that's terrifying. This is like, this is that for sugar. It's a, it's just a, a different way. Um, and it's a new thing for anybody. So there's a little bit of the fear of the unknown element. But, you know, working with this ingredient for so long and seeing the potential, I've seen all the different ways that you can incorporate Miraculin, work with it, and actually make products taste better. So, yeah, I absolutely stand behind it. So it's definitely an uphill battle. I mean, we're talking about going up against the sugar monster here. But I am hopeful because like everyone else who's come into contact with these little berries, I'm very impressed with the potential. They're just really cool. So the miracle berry lives on, at least for now. And I think you're right to be hopeful, Sarah, because after all, history is chock full of David and Goliath stories. That was an episode of Proof from America's Test Kitchen. Be sure to check out their podcast. They have a new season airing right now. And this week's episode is about a very familiar household name, Yelp. Take a listen and then let us know what you think in our Facebook group where we'll keep this podcast club discussion going. Just search for Brought to You by Podcast. We'll be back with our own episodes very soon. But in the meantime, you know where to find us. Call and leave a message at 646-768-4777 or shoot us an email at btyb at insider.com. This episode was produced by the team at Proof, Bridget Lancaster, Caitlin Keeler, Sarah Joyner, and Caroline Rickard. It was edited, sound designed, and mixed by Matt Boynton at Ultraviolet Audio. Brought to you by is a production of Insider Audio. 